Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. It's hard to understand today, but the East, what we refer to today as the Middle East, was once a pinnacle of civilization. Like all great civilizations, it struggled with conflict between personal values and administrative law, about succession and tribalism and security. It evolved as a form of rule in the Islamic world that lasted for almost 1,300 years. By any account, a pretty good run. Today, that rule, the caliphate, has been morphed into something far removed from its original meaning and as such has become a word that embodies the worst, not the best, of civilization. To try and put all of this in some perspective today, I'm joined by esteemed Middle East historian, Hugh Kennedy. Hugh Kennedy is a professor of Arabic in the Faculty of Languages and Culture at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. He was formerly a professor at the University of St. Andrews. He's the author of many books, and it is my pleasure to welcome him back here to the program to talk about his newest caliphate. Hugh Kennedy, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's great to have you here. First of all, explain what the meaning, the origins of the word caliphate are. The origins of the word caliphate go back to the time when Prophet Muhammad died. And when he died, he was, of course, the leader of the Muslim community, the new Muslim community. But he made it clear that there could be no prophets after him. He was the last of the prophets. So when people began to think, what should we do now? Who's going to lead us now? That was not possible to have a new prophet. But that people wanted a new form of leadership, a form of leadership that was not going to be like old kings and emperors and so on, with all that sort of pompous courts and, and riches and so on, but a new form of leadership that was going to combine interpreting the word of God and the will of God for mankind with much more practical things like um, paying for armies, like all sorts of administrative chores. So it was combining a religious and what we might think of as a secular role. That's what they were looking for. Now, the word caliph originally can mean two things. It either means the deputy of God, I Khalifatullah is the Arabic phrase, uh, the deputy of God on earth, which is, of course, a very high and exalted position, or it means the, the successor to Prophet Muhammad which is a less exalted position because nobody could be another prophet. So the successor to Prophet Muhammad would be a sort of secular administrator, a chief executive, if you like, of the, of the new community without the religious role. And throughout the history of the caliphate, people debated which of these interpretations was, was the correct one. And historically, over those 1,300 years, talk a little bit about the ups and downs of that interpretation in periods when the, the secular definition, the secular purpose became more prominent, and times in which the, the religious interpretation became more so. Well, there's a period from, really from the time of Muhammad's death to the mid-10th century, so what we might call the early Middle Ages in a Western context, when the caliphate is the key institution in Islamic politics. The Umayyad caliphs of Damascus, followed by the Abbasid caliphs of Baghdad, were the real and effective rulers of the Muslim world. They had a lot of uh, uh, military power, a lot of cultural power, a lot of cultural patronage in terms of science and thought and literature and so on. Uh, they ruled uh, an empire which stretched all the way from Central Asia at times right to the Atlantic Ocean and the western coasts of Spain. So a huge empire for some 200 years. 
And they had political leadership, for sure, and a measure of religious leadership as well. Though people disputed how far you should look to the caliph for guidance. This was the real issue. Who do you look for for guidance to understand God's purposes? Quran is a wonderful book, a mystical book, but it's not a rule book. It doesn't answer all the questions you need about everyday life and to understand how you live a religious life. So who do you look to to fill in the missing bits, so to speak? Do you look to the caliph or do you look to religious lawyers, people who've read all the traditions and so on of Prophet Muhammad, everything the Prophet said and did? Um, do you look to these sorts of people to provide the answers? And more and more Muslims, particularly the Muslims who we call Sunni Muslims nowadays, decided that they looked to the learned men, not to the ruler, to answer these questions. And by and by, the ruler, the caliphs, lost their if you like, their ideological leadership, they lost their spiritual leadership, they lost the respect, the religious respect of the majority of the community. And when politically things began to go wrong, uh, they struggled to maintain their identity and their prestige of their religious office as well. One of the things that you talk about is that it also broke up into various splinter groups that grew out of this. Talk about that. There was always a question, who should be the caliph? How do you choose a caliph? Well, it had to be a man. There was no, ever, ever any dispute about that. And most people thought that it had to be a man who was descended from the Prophet's own tribe of Quraysh. And lots of people, including the ISIS caliph, caliphs of today, uh, people who claim to be caliphs, uh, still believe that. But the question was very much was difficult when you got beyond that. Should it be somebody who was chosen, as it were, by the community, elected, if you like? There was never a sort of formal election, of course, with um, uh, uh, votes and so on, but chosen by the community. Or should it be somebody who is in a mysterious way chosen by God? And from the very beginning, the, those Muslims who felt that the authority within the community, leadership within the community, had to be in the family of the Prophet Muhammad, the direct descendants of Prophet Muhammad, for God had chosen this family and this family above all others to lead the community. And they were therefore, in a sense, divinely inspired. They had links with, with God. And the people who believe that, um, that it's the family of the Prophet who should lead the Muslim community are the people who we nowadays call Shiites. So there are two distinct points of view about who should be the caliph, whether it should be elected or hereditary. And then, of course, within the family of the prophet, as the generations passed, uh, many, more and more people could claim to be descendants of the prophet biologically. So how do you choose which of these many, many members of the family of the prophet you're going to accept as your leadership, leader? So there are a lot of questions. One question leads to another. And people struggled to work out what was the best system, what was the system most pleasing to God, what system would work best for the Muslim community. And all these disputes and factions are essentially trying to answer that question. And in fact, the Sunnis ultimately became the elites. They, they were the ones everybody would, at various points would rebel against. Yes, again, from um, early days, there was a tendency for elites, particularly military elites, to be Sunni. And this was a tendency that was reinforced when we begin to get Turks appearing in the Middle East from the 11th century onwards and, of course, founding the Ottoman Sultanate uh, in, in Istanbul in, in, in the modern period, that the elites tended to be uh, Sunnis. 
And in many areas, Shiism becomes the religion of protest, if you like, the religion of people who feel that the Muslim world doesn't really uh, respect religion, it doesn't respect the interests of the, the have-nots, if you like, of the, of the, of the lower classes, uh, so to speak. And you see that a lot in the ideology, for example, of the Iranian revolution of 1979, where Shias, the Shi, Shiites proclaim themselves as the champions of the poor, the champions of the disenfranchised. So there becomes a social element to this. But, of course, there were, there were exceptions when uh, a Shiite caliphate, the Fatimid caliphs of Egypt, ruled in terrific splendor from, in Cairo uh, from 969 onwards. Then the, the Shiites were the elite, and it was the Sunnis who, uh, who represented the, the ordinary population. So it could be all these things could be overturned. Different communities had different roles. But throughout the history of Shiism, there's a, a sort of social protest element, if you like, to it. In, in a world that large, in a geography spread out over such a wide area, particularly at that time, talk a little bit about the spread of both language and culture and architecture and the impact that that had. One of the features of the, this Islamic caliphate in its early days was the extent to which its culture spread. It wasn't just a question of spreading the new religion. A whole lot of culture went with it. And the, perhaps the most obviously important of this was the actual language of Arabic itself. God had spoken to mankind uh, in Arabic, in the Quran. It's an Arabic Quran. Uh, but it could have just remained a sort of religious language that was just what people use for discussing um, questions of theology and morals and so on and so forth. But because it was also the language of administration, uh, that government began to function in Arabic. Coins had Arabic letters on them. Letters from rulers, from caliphs, were all written in Arabic. If you wanted to get a good job in the government, you had to learn Arabic, even if originally you spoke Greek or Persian or whatever. So Arabic becomes the language, not just of religion, but the language of government and ultimately the language of everyday life. And that is one of the main features of what's going on. But with Arabic comes a common culture because Arabic, the same sort of Arabic was used in administrative documents in Central Asia and administrative documents in Spain. If you're an administrator from northern Afghanistan, you could get a job in Spain because you were using the same language and the same vocabulary. And if you were a trader from Baghdad, you could do business in Marrakesh in Morocco because you had the same language and culture. So there's an immense amount of cultural integration, even during from the 10th century onwards, politically, the Islamic world splits up. Culturally, it remains very much united and people move from one area to another with an ease, which they certainly can't do nowadays. Right. There were no effective borders and frontiers that prevented people from moving. A common culture enabled them to get different jobs in different areas and so on. So it was a vast, if you coin a modern phrase, a vast single market. It was a vast commonwealth of uh, interests. And what influence did architecture play at the time? The architecture of Islam is obviously derives from earlier architectures. It derives from the tradition of uh, Roman Christian architecture, the Byzantine architecture, and from the tradition of old Persian architecture. But it uses these ancient traditions for new purposes, to create new sorts of buildings, and in particular, the mosque. 
is the, the characteristic building, obviously. But a mosque is not a church, and it's not a temple. A mosque is both a place where people worship, but it's also a community center, and has been right from the beginning. It's a place where people meet together to study, to debate, to hold court, and, and, and do justice, and so on. And the mosque becomes, in almost all big Muslim towns, the main center of, of Muslim social life. And people look to uh, the great old cities that if they want to know how to build a mosque and they're in, in, in some place in North Africa, they will look to the mosques of, 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 of Cairo and then of, of, of Baghdad and so on to see how to do it. So architecture becomes a common language uh, throughout the Muslim world. Of course, there are local variations. People use local stone, people use local brickwork. But the fundamental concepts of this uh, courtyard building with domes and aisles and so on uh, you know, spread throughout the Muslim world. And what brought this period to an end in the 1920s after some 1,300 years? Well, the caliphate really, as a central institution in Islam, comes to an end much earlier than that. In uh, 1258, when the Mongol hordes, the grandsons of Genghis Khan, uh, destroy the city of Baghdad and uh, kill the last of the generation of Abbasid caliphs. Now, people struggled to keep a caliphate going in Cairo um, for some time after that, but it never, it really had lost its prestige and its unifying influence. The Ottoman sultans, who are by far the most powerful rulers in early modern uh, Islamic world in Istanbul, took on the role of caliph. But they were also sultans. When sultan is a, is a term that means secular leadership, means power, means military force, it means raising armies, and so on. Uh, but they still said that they inherited the ancient office of caliph. And towards the end of the 19th century, in fact, they sort of revived the religious meaning of this as a way of unifying the Islamic world and asserting their rule in the Islamic world against European hegemony and European occupation. And then, of course, the 20th century, a new scale of values comes in. Uh, Kemal Ataturk in Turkey simply abolishes the caliphate without any big significant resistance in 1924. And in the first half of the 20th century, people weren't looking to old models of religious authority. That belonged to the old men. The new ideas were nationalism, Arab nationalism, Turkish nationalism. And then after the first World, Second World War, the new ideology of socialism, and nationalism and socialism, right through to the 1970s, 1980s, um, nationalism and socialism replaced any sort of idea of caliphate or that sort of religious ideology as the inspiring and driving force. And when we hear the talk today about the caliphate, talk a little bit about what brought it back and what's inspiring it. Is it purely the religious aspect of it? It's more than that. It's the memories of, of, of a great history. After, by the 1970s and into the 1980s, the ideas of nationalism and socialism that had seemed so progressive for most of the 20th century were, had failed. They'd failed the people of the Middle East. They'd failed on an Arab level. They'd failed to uh, destroy or take over the state of Israel. They'd failed to provide justice and prosperity for most of the people of the, uh, the most of the Muslim people, who still felt subjugated and intimidated 
by, by the West. And so more and more people, intellectuals, began to look back to the early days of Islam, the early days of the great caliphate, and thought, what have they got that we don't have? And one of the things um, that they focused on or came to focus on was the idea of the caliphate. Maybe if we could revive that, maybe if we could make that the center of our um, uh, devotion or the center of our allegiance, maybe then we could recapture something of this early glory of Islam. So it's in a sense, it's a very nostalgic look back to the early days of the Muslim world, um, looking back to a religious leadership, but also a leadership that will, be, that will bind the people, or, uh, the Islamic people together. And, and that's given it in the 21st century, the whole idea of caliphate as a new resonance, right. uh, uh, has opened up new possibilities of looking way back into history to find what made the Muslims great in the old days. Can we do anything with that now? Can we revive it now? And it's, it completely ignores, as you talked about before, the secular aspect of this, the administrative aspect of this, the fact that it was also about, uh, about running a country or running an empire in those days. I think the proponents of the new, uh, new ideas of caliphate or reviving the caliphate would argue that that will come naturally. After we, re we restore a caliphate, uh, when we restore a caliphate in the name of, of, of Islam and of, of God, and we have a powerful caliph, then all these administrative things and so on will come along afterwards. And that's not important. It's the idea of having a God-appointed leader. That's, that's the thing that's important. But of course, in many ways, they disregard the bits of the old history of the caliphate they don't like. One of the great strengths of the caliphate under the Umayyads and the Abbasids in, in from the 7th to the 10th century was a, was a society very open to new ideas. It was a society open to ideas from Greek philosophy, from Indian mathematics, from Greek science. It was a very culturally pluralist society uh, that, uh, that welcomed new and challenging ideas. With the new ideology of caliphate, all that has been rejected. It's very much going back to the oldest ideas you can find, the oldest and in a way the narrowest ideas you can find, and attempting to revive those without looking to this, these wide cultural interests and intellectual interests which characterize the great days of the caliphate. Hugh Kennedy, his book is Caliphate, the History of an Idea. Hugh, I thank you so much for spending time with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.